0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now to 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 5. As we continue to study this letter to the church, it's not... Just interesting instruction for us to know that Paul wanted to relay to Timothy a couple of thousand years ago. This is instruction for us today, and how we relate to one another, and how we prioritize the the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of Scripture. And and today, we're going to really hone in on the relationships that we have within the body of Christ, and how those are to be directed by God and by His Word. So if you've had a chance to make your way to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I'll read all the way through verse 16. Obviously, we're not going to get through all of that today, but we'll get started. Some rich truths for us to learn today, starting in verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is God's Word. Let's pray together before we study it. Father, we do thank you for your Word. And, and sometimes when we open your word, especially on a day like today, we, we might be interested in soaring theology, or maybe some mystery that is hidden in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. But your word contains those things as well as basic, simple, practical instructions for how we are to live together and to honor you and to please you how we relate to one another within the body of Christ, and how we care for our family members, not just as families, but as the family of God, as the church. And so Father, as we begin to study this text, would you guide us, would you help us to put things in their appropriate categories and and make sense out of what we're seeing so that we can be faithful to it? And where we need to be confronted over our lack of care or lack of concern, or maybe our lack of showing a proper deference and respect to those within the body. Lord, would you confront us and convict us in our hearts today and let us turn from our sin and walk in faithfulness to you? And where we need to have a plan for our future and for our families, Lord, I do pray that you would give us grace and wisdom to make those decisions. Let also the gospel bear its weight on this text because the care for those who are alone, the care for those who are needy, well, that's a gospel impulse. So help us today as we study your word, accomplish your purpose through its preaching, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed that churches tend to fall into type categories? Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes you walk into a church and you realize things about that church very quickly. Like sometimes you'll walk into a church and you can realize that this church is all about buzzwords, right? Their mission is determined by every new trend that is being marketed in the church. There's always something new happening, always something new going on. They always want to be on the the cutting edge of everything. It's just a a, a buzzword-driven church. Or maybe you've gone into a church and you walk into the auditorium and it becomes very apparent right at the start that this church is all about the worship experience. The lights are out, the lasers are on, it's still foggy from the last service. It's quite clear that you're about to experience a concert, and and it's also clear that this church has put all of their energy into that worship experience. Or maybe you've gone into a church where all the focus is on preaching, and when the pastor steps up in the pulpit, you hear three-ring binders snapping open as people get their notes ready, because that's just the focus. That's what the church does. I mean, churches have a tendency to kind of take on a particular identity. The thing that they stress the most, it dominates the trajectory from worship style to the primacy of preaching. And don't get me wrong, having a particular style or identity as a church is not necessarily a bad thing. It can become a bad thing. But when we look to Scripture we actually see that there is a tone, there is a style, there is a dynamic that Paul is teaching here in the text, which should be present in every New Testament gospel church. Chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6 and verse 2, it start, it's a whole new section in this letter. And, and this section is trying to help us understand the tone, the dynamic of our relationships within the body of Christ. And Paul is very clear that the tone of these relationships should be shaped like those within a family. All of our relationships to one another in the church should be marked by love and respect and a desire to serve one another. But Paul puts a very fine point on it here, and he says that our relationships should reflect the kind of relationships that are forged in a family. And to most of us, this is not a big surprise because after all, we are the family of God. We've been grafted into the family of God by faith in Christ, and now we are relating to one another. We don't just call each other brother and sister because it's a a nice nifty little title. No, that's coming from the imperative and example of Scripture. And we see this not only in in the New Testament, but we see it all the way back in the Old Testament. God uses certain language when He refers to His people. God refers to His children as His children, as His sons and daughters. In Exodus chapter 4, as the Exodus is getting underway, the children of, of God have begin, begun to cry out to Him and He comes through His mediator and He comes to speak to Pharaoh and He says to Pharaoh, let my son go. Now we've seen the movie and we've seen Charlton Heston and we all know he says, let my people go. But if you go back to Exodus chapter 4 and verse 23, you will see that the language that God uses is very specific. He says, let my son go. He's using familial language. And that just continues on. When God makes promises to King David about how he's going to bless him and he's going to bless his line, he says about David's son, He is going to be a son to me, and I shall be a father to him. And then when we get into the New Testament, we see that language, that family dynamic just strengthened by the fact that Jesus instructs us to call God our Father. And he even uses a very tender term. He uses the term Abba. That's how we're to relate to our Heavenly Father. And then Jesus called his disciples, brothers and sisters, which is one of the reasons why we do this. And one of the things that this tells us is that the story of scripture, the story that that God is working out his plan to redeem a people from their sin, he's adopting us into a family. That's what we are. We're a family. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when I send out emails to the church, it, it starts with dear Cornerstone family. We are a faith family. And Paul is giving us instruction here on how we can relate to one another. As we wait on the conclusion of God's redemptive plan, we're scattered throughout the world, but each of us are representing in a local expression of the church something of the household of God. And in this text, we're learning that the household of God is to function much like the household of a family. Paul wants Timothy to... to to teach the church. And he wants us to understand that we are to care for one another. We are to love one another. We are to respect one another. And he even tells him to do that in the way that you would care or love or respect your mother or father or brother or sister. So let's get into this text. And, And it's going to be a little bit choppy because we're going to deal with the first portion and then we're going to get into this explanation of widows, and there's a lot to unpack there, so we're going to look at that again next week. But let's look first at the tone of Christian relationships. And if you just let your eyes kind of scan back to verses 1 and 2, we'll get there in a second. But as I was preparing, I thought about something that happened in our family life, I don't know, maybe, maybe 8 or 10 years ago. Um, it was late on a Saturday evening. And, you know, the whole week has gone by, I'm getting ready to preach, and all of a sudden I realize something is wrong. I don't feel well, it's bad, you know, I'm sweating, and, and long story short, my wife and I both came down with a terrible stomach bug um, a Saturday evening. And, and in, when I was able to catch my breath, I, I said to my wife, can you please send out a message to the elders and let them know what's going on? It's most likely I am not going to make it on Sunday morning. And so we did that, and of course the elders scramble to figure out what they're gonna do for pulpit ministry. That, that that hasn't happened very often, but it happened on that particular day. They were scrambling to to put something together. But the church was not the only thing scrambling. My family was scrambling. When mom and dad are both down and out, it's ugly. And our eldest child, our daughter, she had to step up and care for her brothers. And she did a great job. She may have been 10 or 12 at the time. I don't remember. She made meals for them. She also checked in on mom and dad every now and then and would leave medicine by the door so she didn't catch what we have. And she did a wonderful job. And it brought to my mind, or the reason this came to my mind, is that most of the time in our families, relationships are just easy to navigate. We all know our roles, we all know our responsibilities. But in those times when stress comes, in those times when, when our dynamics are strained, something goes wrong, somebody gets sick, someone doesn't do what they were supposed to do, someone makes a mistake, some, someone flat out rebels against their responsibility, that's when things get challenged. And we've all experienced that to some degree. We all need grace and we all need God's strength in those moments but let me say this to parents. Parents, make sure that you are training your children, preparing them for the life ahead. Make sure that you're taking time to give your children opportunities to do the things that would be necessary in those situations. You see, Paul had been training Timothy for that. Paul had been training Timothy to step up and lead the church in his absence. Paul's not able to be in Ephesus. Timothy's there. He doesn't know how long he's going to be gone, but in his stead, he's prepared Timothy. And Timothy is caring for the church family at the city of Ephesus. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago, he's the younger brother. And that's caused some problems in the family. There's some strain in the family. And it wasn't easy on him. The older generation was looking down on him, despising him because of his youth. And yet Timothy was called to respond in a very specific way here. Timothy was not told by Paul, hey, they're looking down on you. You need to step up and walk into the room and demand they respect you. No, that's not what he said. He said, you prove your faithfulness by your example. But now he's saying to those same older men who are disrespecting you or despising you, you treat them with the kind of love and respect that you would treat your father. Paul told him, do not rebuke an older man, or you might read it this way, do not address him in a harsh way, but encourage him. Don't rebuke him, encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And this might be a little bit of a paradigm shift for some of us because what Paul just told Timothy to do is he says, do not treat everyone the same. You may be that person that likes to treat everyone the same. That's not the instruction that Paul gives to Timothy here. In, in the case of older men, he is instructed not to rebuke them, but to take on the tone of an encourager. And look, a, a rebuke is, and, and we're, it could go a couple of different ways here. It's either just in the way that you address them, or in those instances where you feel a rebuke is necessary. He's saying that when that comes... Don't don't jump out on that. And it doesn't take much imagination to realize that a younger man who's already not looked on very well, for him to be rebuking harshly the older men in the congregation, that could go really poorly for Timothy. And it could just disrupt the unity of the church. So Paul doesn't tell him to do that. And he doesn't tell him to treat older men like peers. Like, they should just respect you for who you are. Yeah, you're 20 years younger than them, but demand their respect. He doesn't say that at all. He says the opposite of that. He says, treat them the way you would your father. Respect them because of their age. Paul tells him to give senior members in the church the respect that is due to their age and the affection that is due to parents. And in those moments when we speak to correct one another our tone should take into account their age as well as the the family dynamic that is to mark the church. We're to treat one another like family. And this comes naturally to some of us, right? Respecting elders, being encouraging to those around us. This comes naturally to some of us, mainly, I believe, because in part our family life was healthy, but not everybody experiences that kind of healthy, biblically grounded family life. And so this instruction, is, it's important for all of us, but it might be especially important for those who didn't have that. This is going to require great patience on our part and great humility on our part. But guess what? That's what unity requires. It's how a family functions. The same tone of family dynamics should not just be extended to those older Than us, But to those younger, to younger men and younger women as well, treat them like brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this might also be tricky, because if you have younger siblings, you might have a tendency to be a little snarky with them. You might have a tendency to be a little dismissive of them. Maybe those those are strained relationships. And, And Paul is basically telling Timothy, hey, it's time to grow up. It's time to treat your younger brothers and younger sisters with the respect that you would want them to treat you with. This comes from Jesus. When Jesus gives us the example, not only does he tell us how to treat one another, but he gives us the example. He loved his disciples like brothers. Even when they did foolish things and said foolish things, Jesus served them. He taught them with patience. He corrected them with grace, and he served them with humility and love. So rather than having an eagerness to rebuke and correct everyone in the church, Paul tells us to adopt the tone of, of encouragement. I mean, it's actually the imperative in the text. Don't rebuke harshly, be an encourager, commanded from us. None of us has cornered the market on knowing everything, so rather than correcting someone with that know-it-all mentality, we should be eager to speak the truth in love. We should be eager to encourage people, eager to strengthen one another's faith, eager to maintain unity and peace by addressing one another with the type of respect that we give to members of the family. That's what Paul's talking about here. And there is a time, let me just make sure we, we address this, there is a time for correction. There is a time for rebuke, like when Paul rebuked Peter to his face in Galatians. You remember that story? And he, he's very clear. I, he didn't just confront him. He got up in his face in the midst of everyone. So there's definitely a time for a a firm correction or a rebuke. There's a time to call sin what it is and to, to correct false doctrine. There will be times when we are called on to confront a brother or sister on account of their sin, and there's a whole body of instruction on how that is to happen. But in each case, even in those cases, if I can go back to something that Paul said to Timothy at the beginning of this book, he says that the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a sincere faith and a clear conscience. Our aim in all of these relationships is to restore fellowship rather than to isolate someone because of their error. Because we want the family to be a unit, right? We want the family to have peace. We want the family to be unified in our goals, in our relationships, and our purpose. So that's what Paul is getting at. But that's not all he says. The last thing Paul mentions here before he gets into this discussion of widows is he says that this should be done with all purity, with absolute purity. And he says that right after he addresses Timothy and his relationship to the younger women in the church, which basically is is a big blinking light to us, letting us know that what he's instructing Timothy to do is to make sure that he maintains his sexual purity with regard to these relationships. As male leaders interact with younger sisters in the faith, or even younger widows that Paul talks about in this next section, the the necessity of purity cannot be overlooked. Wisdom calls us to be wise in the way that we interact. Wisdom requires us to put safeguards in place in such a situation. Safeguards like not meeting with women alone. And I understand that some might criticize this action, but I and our elders are committed to it for the sake of purity. We should each want to help one another grow in the faith. We should each work to be available to care for one another, no matter age or sex. But the tone of each relationship is to reflect the calling to be members within the household of God. The tone of our relationships within the church is to be that of the family. And this kind of flows throughout all the way into chapter 6, this family dynamic. It just affects every one of these relationships. And so the next set of relationships within the church that Paul addresses is caring for widows. And I don't know if you know this, but the Bible has a lot to say about the care of widows. So let's look at that. In verse 3, he says this, Honor widows who are truly widows. Paul tells Timothy to treat widows with honor. And you might think, well, that's okay. We can respect the widows among us, but there's more to it than just respect. This command reflects our Lord's own concern for this group of women. If you've ever done any studies in history, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, you'll know that not every culture honors and respects widows the way that God calls His people to honor and respect widows. In many ancient Near Eastern cultures, women were only given status and respect in relation to their fathers or their husbands. They had no social status outside of the men who were responsible for them. If their father or husband died, their social status was diminished, and the opportunities that they had afforded to them within those cultures were not very godly and moral opportunities. But from the very beginning, Yahweh instructs His people not to follow the worldly pattern, but to give honor to widows, and not just widows, but widows and orphans and the poor. Specific instruction is given throughout the Bible to guide God's people on how they respect and care for both widows and orphans. They are to be valued and protected and cared for. In some cases, God even connects our exercise of justice in life with how we care for the poor and the widow and the orphan. God describes himself as a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widow, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. When widows are taken advantage of and they cry out to God, the Bible says that God hears their cries and his wrath begins to boil. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 22 and verse 22. God gave instruction to farmers within the community that they were not to to harvest all of their land. They were to leave the outer edges of their fields unharvested so that that grain could go to feeding widows and orphans and the poor. And, and that's an Old Testament summary. You can go into the New Testament and you see Jesus showing compassion for widows. There's, there's all these strange little stories. I say strange because they don't seem to fit into the flow of the narrative. And there's one that we, we studied years ago when we were studying through the book of Luke. And Jesus goes to this little city of Nain and he goes there for one purpose. He walks into the city and when he gets there, there's a funeral procession coming by. And there's this woman whose son has died. And the implication is that her husband has also died. And now her son has died. And and she's going to be left to the ravages of the world. And Jesus comes into the city and he raises her son from the death. And he gives him back to his mother. And he makes a show of, I've done this so that you could be cared for. It's a beautiful story. When teaching us about prayer, Jesus often gives illustrations. Well, one time he gives us an illustration about the persistent widow. Now, let's just remember that widows were, were not people of high social standing in this culture, and Jesus is elevating them and using them to teach a positive example. He teaches uh, on this persistent widow who would not stop demanding justice, and he encourages us to pray like her, He warned his disciples from following the examples of the scribes because the the scribes and the way that they went about life ended up devouring widows' houses. Jesus says, don't do that. He showed care for his own mother. You remember when Christ was on the cross? And he looks to his mother and he looks to John and he said, behold your mother. He's, He's working to care for his mother in his absence even before he dies. James, the Lord's brother, tells us that pure religion, pure and undefiled religion, is to care for widows and orphans. And so as we consider this passage in front of us and we start talking about widows, this is not a moment to sit back and close your Bibles and yawn. This is a time to lean in because God is teaching us something about His own heart for this group of people. All throughout Scripture we see this. We need to know how to care for widows because this matters greatly to our Heavenly Father. Paul took this seriously as well, which is why, in this section on practical instruction for the family, this this section on widows is the largest of all of them. He kicks things off by telling us to honor those who are truly widows. Now, if you were reading along and trying to categorize things in your mind, you might have seen that I believe there are four categories of widows that are related, that are referred to here. Um, Number one, the true widow is a widow in the church that has no extended family to care for them. That's one category. Then there's the widow who has grandchildren or children who can care for her. That's a second category. And then you have younger widows who should remarry if possible. That's a third category. And then you have the widows who live for pleasure rather than for the Lord. And let me just say, there's a lot to unpack in all of that. Well, how could they be denying the faith if they get remarried? We'll get into that next week. We're going to look at all of these in the next today and next week. But let's look first at those who are truly widows here. And what does he tell us to do? He says for us to honor those who are truly widows. Those who are truly alone, truly in need, we are to honor such women. And in the context, the word honor does not mean that we just show them a level of respect. It implies providing financial support for them. Did y'all hear that? The word honor implies providing financial support for those who are truly widows. And the reason I say this is because in the next section, down in verse 17, when he's talking about how we relate to elders, he describes... Um, the church supporting elders financially, and he uses the exact same word. Look at it in verse 17. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So that word honor there has a, a broader context than just showing them respect. He's talking about providing support for them. And then later in this passage that we read earlier, Paul mentions enrolling, certain women, in, certain widows into the role of the church and that too involves the church caring for those who are truly widows with some level of financial assistance, financial support. Can you think of another time in the New Testament when we see the church making decisions to ensure that widows are properly cared for? Do you remember Acts chapter 6? Remember what was happening there? So in Acts chapter 6, they, this this problem arose in the church and there was this group of widows they were hellenistic greek speaking widows and they were being overlooked in the distribution of food which already implies that they were receiving some kind of support from the church it wasn't just in respect but it was in we're going to care for you and because of that the elders were called together the the apostles at that time were called together and they had to make a decision and the congregation put forward seven men that became the the earliest, the first iteration of the deacon ministry, and they cared for those particular widows. So we see this. It's clear from this text and the rest of Scripture that as a church, we should be eager to care for those widows who are truly in need, and that includes financial care and support. And that might be a new concept to you. Maybe not. Paul also wants us to ensure that in the care of widows, that it doesn't lead to a serious financial strain on the congregation. That's what he said in verse 16, that don't let it be a burden on the church. So he is, he is conscious of the fact that this could become a serious financial strain on the church. So he provides criteria that helps us to determine which widows are eligible for such care and support. And the first thing he tells us is that those widows who have families in the church. This is in verse 4. Those widows who have families in the church, they should be cared for by their families. And I know this is quite heady stuff, but this is very helpful and practical, and it's something that we should be walking in. So look at what he says in verse 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren... And the implication is within the church, their children are here, their grandchildren are here. Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. A widow's extended family should be their primary means of care and support. Verse 8, Paul adds this, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's very strong language. Then again in verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So there are three reasons given as to why the family should care for their own. Number one, this type of care is a way that families can return to their widowed mother or widower father the type of care that they gave to us over the years. It's a way that we can show mutual respect and care and concern to them as they have cared for us over the years. The second is that this type of care pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord, and it's a sincere reflection of our faith in Christ and our understanding of what pure religion looks like. And then third, by caring for our own family members who are in that state, we relieve some of the financial burden that would otherwise be laid upon the church or someone else. Those are the three categories. So in that day, you may know this, in that day there was a system in place that was designed to help care for a woman in the case that her husband died, and it was this, it was called the dowry system. Are you all familiar with the dowry system if you 're not familiar with it, basically the dowry system was kind of like an insurance policy when a when a young woman was betrothed to a man the bride 's father would provide a dowry, a sum of money that would be given to her to his daughter when she was married, and if her husband died, she would be cared for financially out of that dowry. Or she could return home to her family and take the dowry with her. Those were, that, that was a system that was, you see it talked about in Scripture. Today, we don't have a dowry system. We don't. But we do have insurance policies. And just practically speaking, I want to highly recommend to each of you that, that you consider that option very seriously. If something tragic and unexpected were to happen to me, I want to make sure that I've done whatever I can to ensure that my wife and my children would be cared for financially. That's a decision that you need to make, but I would highly recommend that you consider that. Talk to somebody who can help you with that. But it's also important for us to see that caring for our aging mothers and fathers is something that pleases the Lord. Pleases the Lord. This past year, no no secret, this past year my father went to be with the Lord, and I miss him terribly. And my mother is retired, and, and she has the financial means to provide for herself, but I desperately want to be a good and faithful son. And while that doesn't mean extending financial support to her, it does mean that I want to support her and care for her in every way possible. My wife and I are currently looking for a new home in the area. We're looking to sell our home and buy a home that would allow my mother to move in with us and and be with us. And I need to get her to Texas anyway, but I really want her to be here with me So please pray for us as this process goes forward that God would allow that to happen and we can care for my mother in in the ways that Scripture indicates. But let me just kind of, just have a general family question. What about you? What, What plans do you have in place to care for your family, your aging mother or your aging father, your widowed mother or your father who is alone? He's a widower. Are you prioritizing care for them as a family? This is the instruction of Scripture, and it's something that pleases the Lord. Are you seeking to help them? Maybe you have both parents still living, and they're still together. Are you seeking to help them at this stage of life? And let me encourage you to do something else, and I have a couple of elders that might amen this statement. Start that conversation early. I've been working on my mom and dad for years before my mom before my dad passed away, trying to get them to move here so that they could be here and we could care for them. And we're just now getting to that point. Start that conversation early and it might be a good idea for you to open the scriptures and say, this is what I want to honor. I want to honor you the way God has told me to do that. So I don't know what that looks like, but I want to have that conversation with you. I want to have a a plan in place. What would you like? How can I serve you? How can I care for you? Because I want to honor you and I want to be faithful to the Lord. To care for those who are alone and in need is the heart of God. And as His people, we should be eager to do the same. In fact, Paul says that if we refuse to do this, then we have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. That's very strong language. What does he mean by that? This does not mean that we've stopped believing in Christ, but that we have denied the truth of Scripture that would instruct us to care for widows and orphans. It it would make us worse than unbelievers because even non-Christians know that caring for widowed mothers and widower fathers is the responsibility that should rightly fall to the family. Some cultures do this generationally. African cultures, Asian cultures, Indian cultures commonly have multiple generations all living under the same roof. They take the care over their aging family members very seriously. And as Christians, we should be willing and eager to do the same, although we do it for different reasons. We do it to honor the Lord. We do it to honor our parents. We care for our family as a way to return to them the care they've shown to us. We do this because it pleases the Lord. And we care for them so that the burden of their care doesn't fall on someone else. But what about those who are truly widows, right? What about those who have no extended family to care for them? What about those younger widows who have a full life ahead of them? All of those questions and more are answered in the text, but we're not going to get into them today. We'll get into them next week. So if you're anxious or interested, come back. We'll we'll keep studying God's Word together. That's what we do. But, But as I close, I think there are two very important lessons that we can learn from this passage and apply to our lives here at Cornerstone. And the first is this. Let the tone of our relationships with one another be a reflection of family life. If the only time you see each other is on Sunday, it's really hard to build deep relationships of care and trust and support. It is. And it's really hard for one person to meet with 225 people or however many people are here, I don't know. And so one of the things that we've done as a church is we have what we call home groups. And it's different than what we do here. Home groups are an opportunity for us to be involved in each other's lives on a regular basis outside of the church gathering. To eat a meal together, to study scripture together, to pray together, to build relationships with one another so that we can be a reflection of the family of God even when we're not gathered on the Lord's day. But there's so many other things that we can do. God has surrounded us. I feel very privileged As a young man, I was 33 years old when I first became the pastor here 14 years ago. And I just looked at Mark and Dan as my big brothers. I I got to learn from Mark Ritchie and Dan Truitt. And now Jeff's in the mix. And I get to learn from Jeff. We have these faithful, godly men who have incredible experiences. And as a young man who wants to honor the Lord and wants to be faithful the way they've been faithful, man, we have so much to learn from them and to our mature senior saints look at all of these young people that God has surrounded you with that you can pour into them the the love and experience and the care and the wisdom and the knowledge that you've gained over the years so that they can be strong and walk faithfully there's this mutual respect that happens and this opportunity for us to grow as a family so that for generations to come the gospel will be proclaimed and discipleship will be happening in the church that's why we're all together We're all a family, and God has surrounded us with all of these people to help us to grow and learn and be strong and to be comforted in the midst of our sorrow and to rejoice with in the midst of those joyful moments. All of this is part of God's plan, and as a family, we need to embrace it. We all have room to grow in embracing this dynamic. So let us learn to do that. Let us engage in home groups. Let us engage in relationships outside of our peer groups so that we can love one another, serve one another, learn from one another, and relate to one another like a family. Number two. So that's the first one. Let the tone of our relationships with one another be a reflection of family life. Number two, take seriously the care of your family, especially those who are alone and in need. And I get it, you're in the prime of your life, you got little kids at home, everything is busy. It seems like every conversation I have with people in the church starts out with, how was your week? Man, it was busy. How was your week? Man, it was busy. I mean, I get it, it's hard, it's difficult. We are very busy people. But that doesn't give us an excuse for not caring for those that God has placed in our family. And there's a clear gospel impulse beneath this instruction to care for those who are alone and needy in christ god has cared for us and we need this because spiritually we are alone in this world and we are far more needy than we readily admit and in his mercy god has loved us even though we don't deserve it christ came to save the lost to rescue the perishing to save us from our sin and shame and guess what to bring us into his family And guess what? He hasn't stopped caring for us. He will never stop caring for us. He will never leave, never forsake us. And we have a future hope because of him. So there's this gospel impulse that I think should apply to the way that we care for our family members. He wants the truth of the gospel to fuel the way we care for those in need among us, starting with our own family. So let me ask the question, are you willing and eager to care for your parents as they grow older and their needs increase? This may look different for each of us, but the command of God is that we care for our families. He calls us to care for our mothers and fathers the way they've cared for us. And I don't fully know what that looks like for you, but if you haven't considered this until today, then I would say that now is the time. Have a conversation with your spouse about this. Have a conversation with your parents about this. And settle in your mind that this type of care pleases the Lord and begin to consider how you might take steps to be faithful in this area. That's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot to do. Practical instruction coming straight out of God's Word. So let me pray for us all. And God would help us to be faithful in this area. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the, the, the soaring theology that it reveals and the deep mysteries that it unveils, but we also thank you for the practical instruction it gives us. And so as we consider this now, help us as a church, help us as brothers and sisters, to grow in understanding this dynamic, this tone of family. You've, you've called us together on purpose, for a purpose. So Lord, let us embrace that. Let there be no lone rangers among us, but let us understand who we are, needy people who, who need one another. And let us be willing to give our time and our energy and our wisdom and our experience to help others. And let us be willing to receive that kind of instruction and care from others. Lord, let us be a strong family so that we can do what you've called us to do, to see the gospel go forth from this place, not just in our lifetime, but for generations to come. And Lord, I do pray that you would prick our hearts deeply to care for those who are our, our family, for our mothers and fathers, for those around us, even as a church. Lord, we have a deep responsibility to those who are widows among us and orphans among us and the poor among us. So Lord, give us a heart that's, that's reflexive of your gospel and, and help us to be faithful in this task. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.